0: We'll be returning to Revelation uh, chapter 13 this morning. If you're uh, a guest here this morning and you haven't been with us, you probably wonder what in the world did we jump into this morning. But we've been doing Revelation for quite a while under the title, The Vindication of the Lord and His People. And we are in a, a big section of Revelation that we're calling the futile war of the devil. And we've gotten through chapter 12. I've spent one Sunday getting a little bit into chapter 13. We'll probably be in chapter 13 a couple more weeks at least. Uh, actually, today and, and next Lord's Day, maybe more than that. I, I never can, should promise because I'm always breaking those promises. Uh, and then we'll finish up with that section in 14. But it's a marvelous section of scripture. And we're sort of at the center of a lot of things we think about when we think about Revelation. We meet in this chapter the beast from the sea who is going to be the Antichrist. I, I, I'm not, I haven't taken the time to demonstrate why yet, and I'm still not going to do it this morning, but we're going to get there eventually. But then also there's a beast that comes up from the earth in this chapter, and we learn about the mark of the beast, 666, in this chapter. These are the iconic things we think about when we think about the book of Revelation. And this chapter is part of a section where John is being shown visions of Satan's feudal war against God in heaven and against his son, the Lord Jesus, and against God's people, the Jews. And finally, in this chapter, because Satan has not been able to conquer anything else, he goes after those who have come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. We call it the devil's feudal war because every time he wages war, he's defeated. And now he is going to go after those who have come to faith in Christ. Only What Satan does not realize in his fury is that by submitting themselves even to death as the Lord's faithful witnesses, the Lord's witnesses, once again, are those who conquer. For their death is merely a transition to be with their Lord and to reign with him while the devil at the end of Revelation is ultimately cast into the lake of fire. So let's begin this morning by reading The whole chapter, and then we will begin to take a closer look at it once again. I'm beginning at the end of chapter 12 with verse 17, which is the bridge into this section in chapter 13. If you haven't been with us before, I'll keep the text uh, up here on the screen, but please follow along in your Bibles uh, if you would like to do that. So it says in verse 17 of chapter 2, "...then the dragon became furious with the woman," who is the the sign of Israel in, in the text. And went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood, that is the dragon, on the sand of the sea. And he calls forth a champion. And so in uh, chapter 13, it says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword... Must he be slain? Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Six, six. Um, I grew up in an era of youth ministry when, on special occasions, youth pastors would show Christian films as youth activities. And these films were designed to cause the unbelieving teen to desire salvation and to persuade the believer to greater Christian commitment. And one of the favorites for youth pastors to show at that time was this frightening film called Thief in the Night. It's a movie about the coming of the Lord to rapture away his church and the tribulation that follows on earth. And, of course, the title is taken, 1 Thessalonians 5.2, The Day of the Lord Will Come Like a Thief in the Night. Does anybody remember this film, by the way? okay, Fewer of you than I thought. But the rest of you, at least the good news is, you can Google it, I think, and watch it online. Not during the sermon, but um, sometime later on. (laughs) I was in fifth grade, I think, when I was first shown this film late one night on a New Year's Eve Uh, Looking back on it now, the movie is pretty cheesy. The acting really isn't that great. And it is so 1970s style when you look back at it. But it is a classic in early Christian filmmaking. And as a kid, it's, it's larger than life back then when you see it. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the plot line, the movie tells the story of a young married woman named Patty. By the way, almost every woman was named Patty back in the 1970s. In fact, the, the actress that plays the part of Patty in the movie, her name is actually Patty, too. Go figure. Um, so, plot spoiler here, but in the movie, Patty thinks she's a Christian because she goes to church and she reads her Bible sometimes. But her Christian friends, including her husband... Keep telling her, you need to trust Christ. You need to get saved for real because the rapture is going to come. And if you're not caught up with the Lord, with the rest of us to meet him, you're going to go through the tribulation period and all these terrible things are going to happen. Judgments are going to come. War is going to come. Famine is going to come. And there's going to be this one world government and they're going to take you by force and try to make you have the mark of the beast on your forehead or your palm. And if you don't take the mark, you'll be arrested and probably beheaded. And Patty has this dream that she wakes up and her husband is not in the bed. He's gone. And all of her friends are gone. Now, as you're watching the movie, you don't realize it's a dream at this point, okay? Sorry I spoiled it for you. But you don't don't realize she's dreaming, but she starts experiencing all of the things that she was warned about by her husband and her friends, and she's actually captured by this ominous one-world government people but she escapes and then they're chasing her and at the end of the movie she's on this bridge and they're coming from this side of the bridge and that side of the bridge and she's making a decision and she finally jumps off the bridge to end her life rather than be captured by them and she wakes up but to her horror she looks over and her husband is actually gone and the radio is on and the announcer is saying in this panicked voice that millions have disappeared all over the world, and the shocking reality settles in that the rapture has actually happened. As the haunting refrain of the movie's theme song plays, there's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. When I was a kid, I got saved about four or five times during that movie. (laughs) Lord, if I didn't mean it before, I really mean it now. I do trust you and I want to follow you and please you with my life. But you know that there are millions who are going to be left behind. It's not a dream. Jesus is coming again and there are going to be political figures governing the world under the control of Satan, and they will be requiring everyone to receive the mark of the beast. We just read it in Revelation 13. In Revelation 20, verse 4, John says, he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark in their foreheads or their hands. But the problem with these kinds of Christian films, even the more recent Left Behind series, which maybe some of you have seen, as well-meaning as they are, they can't possibly represent the level of despair and angst and fear that will be in the world after Christ returns and the church is taken away from the world. And they can't envision exactly how these events will unfold. They, They try to sometimes, but we really don't know for sure what is going to happen as far as how the, the details will work out. So people watch these movies and come away with this caricature, a parody, even, even at times a comic image, a cartoon image of the events that Christians believe will really unfold in the end. Now, despite this fact, these movies may impact some people to really think about biblical prophecy and investigate it further, and maybe it's something that God would actually use to, to lead them to Christ. I'm sure that that's happened. But they also cause a lot of people to take what the Bible says less seriously, concluding that prophecy is just this ridiculous drama that Christians tell themselves based on revelation, which of course nobody can understand anyway. Like the guy standing on the street corner with the sign, you know, the end is near and nobody's really paying attention to it. Or, like Christian propaganda that flares up every time some charismatic leader gets it in his head that he has figured out the exact time of Christ's return and then announces it far and wide and deceives so many people. We forgot to mark the 10 year anniversary of May 21 this past uh, month, though. So, we'll have to wait for the 20th uh, one of, of Christ's return. You see, we can't really comprehend the return of the Lord and the cataclysmic judgments that are going to be unleashed that we've been reading about in Revelation, nor the intense persecution of believers and absolute rule over people on earth that will come to place described to us in Revelation. All we can do is mimic what we read if we try to display it for people and imagine it so that we can try to portray it as much as possible. You know, the world does exactly the same thing. Uh, they, they depict how the world is going to end. They don't believe the Bible, but there's all these stories, novels and movies, about the, the end of the world and the dystopian time that will follow. Forget a nuclear holocaust. If Hollywood is correct, the world is going to be wiped out by any number of other options, like volcanoes or floods or diseases or another ice age, or an asteroid, or better yet, dragons, that's a thing, Uh, beasts from the sea, size of skyscrapers, zombies, aliens, they're all going to have something to do with the end of the world. And they mimic, they're really mimicking what God has already said is going to come to the world. If you read this stuff and really imagine it, like it portrays, Hollywood can't touch what's really going to happen. They can't even come close to what's happening on this earth. Now, in a similar way, but in a far more effective and much greater, devious way, Satan. Satan mimics and twists what God has declared and promised. What we just read is a record of Satan's mimicry in Revelation 13. When we look very carefully at this chapter, we can see several examples of the devil unable to create anything new, anything of his own, simply producing a false version of God and his works in order to turn the hearts of the world to him and to attempt to destroy anything good that God has created. And as we work through this chapter today and next Lord's Day, there's something I really want you to see, and that is how Satan deviously mimics and twists everything that has to do with God, his person, his promises, his works, his grace. First of all, we will see that Satan mimics the kingdom of God, and that's what we're going to begin looking at this morning. But next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we're going to look at the fact that Satan also mimics the essence of God. Do you realize that there's an unholy trinity represented in this chapter by Satan and the two beasts, the dragon calling forth his champion, which we will explain later is the Antichrist who died, notice, ostensibly at least, and rose again. And the world worship him for that resurrection. And the other beast, which acts like the Holy Spirit, because all he's doing is calling attention to the Antichrist and asking the earth to worship him. It's an unholy trinity. It's mimicry. It's mockery in this chapter. Also, Satan mimics the power of God, coming back to life, calling down fire from heaven, making inanimate idols live and breathe. And finally, Satan mimics the seal of God, and that's what we're seeing in the mark of the beast. It's the antithesis of God's seal on the forehead that we read about in Revelation for his saints. So let's take a look at this first way that Satan mimics and twists the person and work of God. Satan mimics the kingdom of God. He raises up this beast, calling it forth from the deep. Now, it says in some of your translations the the bottomless pit there. It's just the word abus or abyss, as we say in English. And it it is most likely a reference to the depths of the sea. Not every reference in the Greek New Testament to abyss is the bottomless pit. There's different abysses. And uh, maybe sometime we'll just talk about the abyss on a Sunday morning. I don't know. But uh, it just comes up every once in a while. And, and so it's calling it forth from the sea. And, and Satan, the dragon, gives this beast global authority. Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet was like a bear's, were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power or great ability. It's the word dunamis, it's it's power, ability in, in, in scripture. And his throne, which is the position to rule, and great authority, which is political control. Now, this morning I want to just figure out, or I should say begin to figure out, the vision of this beast. This is one of the most complicated things in revelation. It's not that complicated where you can't ever figure it out. If you just take the scripture and put it all together, you get a pretty good idea of what's going on here. Remember, it's a vision. John calls it a vision. In fact, in chapter 12, he says, these are signs. A sign points to a greater reality. And so while John is sometimes seeing actual events that happen in Revelation, sometimes he will say, now this is a vision. This is a sign. This represents something else. That's why Satan is called a dragon. Israel is called a woman. Uh, Christ is the child and, and so forth. So I want to look at this vision of the beast. Ten horns on seven heads. Ten diadems or crowns adorning the horns. Looking like a leopard with the feet of the bear and the mouth of a lion. What does this represent? Well... The symbols refer to political power and authority, which makes sense in the context, because that's what the dragon gives to the, to the beast, this political authority. But to begin to get an understanding of them, as I told you last week, we've got to go to the first place in the Bible where this kind of image is introduced. And it's going to take us, for most of the rest of our time this morning, all the way back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And if you would turn there with me, we're going to be in Daniel, chapter 7, and uh, for time's sake, I won't, be, I won't read the beginning of the chapter. We'll start in verse 2. Um, but we've got to basically work through uh, the whole chapter to understand this. And it's, incidentally, this is why we've been reading through Daniel right now because so much of what Daniel sees in these prophecies at the end of Daniel uh, connects with what we're looking at in Revelation. Now, Daniel is, of course... An Old Testament prophet, and he's very interested in knowing about God's future plan for his people, Israel. Uh, Doug Verley read the text this morning. All these, all these prophecies are Daniel's urgent plea to God. What's going to happen with the people? He's in captivity. He, he was reading Jeremiah and determined, wait a minute, God's only going to leave us here for 70 years. What happens after that? And God graciously gives these angelic beings to Daniel to come and to talk to him and to tell him what they can at that point about the future. God blesses Daniel in this way. And we're going to start in verse 2 where Daniel describes the first vision that he had in a dream about his people, Israel. Daniel says in verse 2, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. And notice where they come up from. They come up out of the sea, just like in Revelation 13. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked and its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. Now what I'm not going to do this morning is take time to look at every detail of each of these. I'm drawing out specific things which connect us to Revelation 13. So uh, if you want to borrow a commentary on Daniel, you can figure out the rest of it. So I'll, I'll let you know about that. But in verse five, Daniel keeps saying, behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. Now, let's pause for just a second and take inventory of what we've just read. By comparing Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 with John's vision in Revelation chapter 13. In Daniel's vision, there are four beasts, one like a lion, another like a bear, one like a leopard with four heads, and another what Daniel describes as a terrifying beast. In John's vision, there is a single beast with four forms, a leopard's body, bear's feet, and a lion's mouth. Both beasts rise up from the sea. In both visions, there are seven heads. Did you notice that? The beast in Revelation 13 has seven heads, and in Daniel seven, there are seven heads between the beasts, because there's four beasts, and the leopard has four heads. So if you count all the heads in the vision, you come up with seven heads total. And both visions have 10 horns. And I want you to notice that in both visions, the beast is given dominion. Somebody is pulling the string. Somebody is given power, giving power. And that someone in Revelation 13, it is revealed, is Satan who gives his power to the beast, but only as far as God allows him to do it. Now, what I'm trying to show you is that there is a striking correspondence between these two visions. They're not the same vision. That's not what I'm saying here. One is Daniel's vision for his understanding. One is John's vision for his understanding. They're hundreds of years apart. But both visions appear to be describing the same thing. They are signs that point to a greater reality. What is that greater reality? Well, if we keep reading, we find out in verse 8. I considered the horns on on, on the terrifying beast, the ten horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn. A little one. We don't read about this in Revelation 13. There's this little horn. Before which, three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. So he destroyed them. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a, great, and a mouth speaking great things. In fact, the idea is very close to the speaking blasphemous things like we read about in Revelation 13. As I looked, thrones were placed And the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Remember Revelation 4 and 5? The court sat in judgments and the books were opened. I looked them because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, this little horn. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Remember in Revelation, the two beasts that we read of in chapter 13 later are cast alive into the lake of fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season That shall not be destroyed. If you're like Daniel, you're curious to know what the vision means. After all, God is giving Daniel a glimpse into the future, and some of the visions he's describing here have not yet been fulfilled. So there are future too. Well, Daniel is not disappointed. And so the text continues As for me, Daniel. now, I'm going to have to take a dramatic pause here too because uh, my uh, notes went all the way to the very top and uh, I want to make sure I'm back uh, where I was. Give me one second here. I'm so sorry about this. Um, uh, maybe we should sing a song or something. Uh, while I'm, uh, let's see, this is verse 24. Okay, I went too far. Okay. Because um, uh, I'm so sorry. I can't believe this hasn't happened before. Okay. Okay. Uh, We're going to talk about this later. Uh, Okay. Uh, There we go. I found it uh, forever and ever, right? Exactly. Okay, now, um, I I just wanted to make sure I'm at the right place. So uh, the angelic messenger who's given this to Daniel is going to explain more, okay? But here's what I want you to do is, is notice these verses 17 and 18, they summarize for us most of the big picture of what's going on. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Four kings. In other words, four kingdoms. And we can actually identify these kingdoms from world history. The lion is Babylon, the world empire that conquered God's people and carried them into captivity. Daniel is seeing the vision in Babylon because he's been carried away into captivity himself. But Babylon was later conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, and Daniel lived during the fall of Babylon and the rides of the Medes and Persians. In fact, the story of Daniel and the lion's den is not under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It's under the, uh, the, the king in, Medo, in the Medo-Persian dynasty. The leopard is Greece, who again conquered the world through Alexander the Great. Why does the the leopard have four heads? Because as you know your history, when Alexander the Great died, the empire was divided between his four generals, uh, the Didiakoi, the successors. And then the beast that conquered them all and stamped its mark all over the world, literally to this day is the Roman Empire. Now, I'm not making this up, and I'm not just following some clever way of making sense out of Daniel's vision. This same succession of empires has already been described in a vision back in Daniel chapter 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In fact, so certain are we of the vision here in Daniel 7 that it refers to these four kingdoms, That historical critics of the Bible who don't believe in prophecy, they don't believe in God, they say that the Bible is merely a human book, they claim that Daniel could not possibly have been written before all these events happened, before the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire in Greece and Rome. Because Daniel's vision of the future is so accurate they recognize that there's no way that he could have known this. The book of Daniel, they say, was probably written about 150 to 200 AD when the Jews are being persecuted and they needed encouragement for the future. And so somebody made up the story about Daniel and about the kingdoms. And and so so eventually Rome, who conquered them and and destroyed them, will eventually be destroyed themselves. That's really what's happening here, the historical critics say. But, of course, Jesus himself quotes Daniel 7.13 when he's talking to his disciples during the Olivet Discourse, extribing the future for them, as well as Scripture from Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 12. It's on the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. The truth is Daniel was written by Daniel who's recording these visions during the time when God's people were still in captivity wondering what their future was going to be. And God is giving Daniel and his people hope because he says that there is coming a kingdom and they will receive and possess this kingdom. And notice what it says. It's very curious. I looked this up in in Hebrew to make sure it's exactly, and this is a a great translation of it. Forever, forever forever and ever. It's a very interesting expression because the kingdom of Christ will last a thousand years. I think that's the first forever there. And and I've showed you this before. Oftentimes forever in Hebrew, especially, doesn't necessarily mean it goes on forever and ever and ever. Amen. It just means a very, very long period of time that cannot possibly end until God says, okay, now it's over. You can't destroy it. But forever and ever is a way to say goes on forever and ever and ever. That's why the emphasis is there. So we have the the kingdom of Christ, which Revelation 20 says asks for a thousand years, and then we transition to the new heaven and the new earth, which goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And that gives great hope to Daniel and to God's chosen people, Israel, because he promised them that they would be this kingdom. And through them, the Jews, all of the earth... All over the earth, through them, all over the earth, people would be blessed. But it seemed at that time that they were at the mercy of other kingdoms. It's just a little tiny country in the middle of all these empires. The kingdom of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and ultimately Rome. Jesus himself, of course, lived under the Roman government. He was crucified by a Roman style of execution. And God says to Daniel, one day your time will come there will be coming a Jewish king who will ultimately reign. But before that happens, there are going to be other kingdoms dominating the globe. So Daniel wants to know more. So let's keep reading. Then he says, I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast. That's the Roman beast, which was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying with teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left of its feet and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So the angelic messenger answers. He said, "'As for the fourth beast, "'there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth "'which shall be different from all the kingdoms "'and it shall devour the whole earth "'and trample it down and break it to pieces.'" As for the 10 horns, out of this kingdom, 10 kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time." And in Revelation 13, we find something very similar. In fact, if I can jump back there for just a second, in Revelation 13, 5, verses 5 through 7, it says the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, that's three and a half years, that's the same as time, times and half a time. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. This coming kingdom, this, this, it's not Rome, but it's, it's styled a little bit after the, the Roman uh, government. It is, it is going to wreak havoc on this earth, and this is what's also being described in Revelation 13. This is undoubtedly the same ruler and the same time frame we find in Daniel 7. Only here, the little horn will be in charge. He will blaspheme against God and seek to destroy the saints for three and a half years. So in Daniel 7, it's the little horn. In in Revelation 13, it's the beast itself. In other words, the little horn in Daniel's vision is the beast in John's vision. Now, why is he the little horn? I don't know. Maybe he's short. Okay? I don't know maybe he is an unlikely ruler that all of a sudden rises out of obscurity and takes over the world and nobody saw that coming but in the end he will be destroyed because the angelic messenger says but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away that is the little horn's dominion and consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And that's the end to Satan's counterfeit kingdom. Just as there will be an end to everything that Satan devises. So the beast that we see rising out of the sea in Revelation 13 is a final and ultimate version of the kind of kingdom Satan is always trying to raise up to overthrow God and his people. I'm going to repeat that. This this beast that we see in Revelation 13 is, is a conglomeration. That's why it has feet and a mouth. It has representation of this other vision from Daniel 7. It is this final and ultimate version of a kingdom over the world. There has not been a Roman, an empire since Rome. There's one last great empire to come, and that's what we read about in Revelation 13. And this vision shows, John, what is going to happen. It is Satan's last attempt before the end as a world takeover. And, and Satan has been trying to do this all throughout human history. You read of empires rising up and conquering. And oftentimes, God's people are the target. And eventually, there's one last time Satan is going to do this. Now, we could move from here to look at other scriptures that help us understand this beast. For example, the beast comes up again in Revelation 17, and John is going to give more details there. But I want to press the pause button for today and make some observations that I think will be really helpful to us. Looking at the big picture. So what we see here, just in general, by reading this prophecy, is that God has promised a kingdom and has promised to rule the world in righteousness. We're waiting for that. That's the climax of Revelation. In this kingdom, God's people will be blessed and those who honor God will be exalted. But until that time, Satan is always trying to raise up a false kingdom, a counterfeit kingdom a twisted parody of the real kingdom to come. And the governments of those kingdoms target the Lord's people. They use political authority to remove them. And I'm speaking very specifically here. Political authority. There are people in, in the world of intelligentsia who, you know, write about and, 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 and are against Christians and believers and so forth in the universities and all that. But it's the political power you have to watch out for. That's authority. Everybody wants power. And it's not always just a human effort. Satan will drive this when he gets the opportunity. Governments have targeted the Jews, God's chosen nation, since the earliest days of their existence. And since the time of Christ, they have targeted Christians who have placed their faith in Israel's Messiah. Does it ever cross your mind? Think about this. Why is it that the Lord's faithful ones are always the ones who are in the crosshairs of government. Why us? I mean, think about it. Doesn't the unbelieving world try to spread the rumor, God isn't real? We evolved after the Big Bang. Your religion is just a prop to give you false hope. You're a bunch of extremists. You're a bunch of religious fanatics. You're wasting your life. Well, if that's true, why would anybody care about us? Why is this intense drive for government to persecute and destroy those who are using this so called false religious prop called Christianity? Well, at the same time, governments will promote and defend various things the Bible says are sinful, even if only a minority of people do them. And if you're not in step with the culture and you don't agree, you'll get targeted. Why target some random bunch of people with this crazy notion about a crucified Savior? Who would really care? Doesn't this desire to stamp out a supposedly ancient and ridiculous religion betray the secret that they know the Bible is true after all and the story of human history really is the struggle between two kingdoms? you might think, well, you know, that's a little over the top. Our government isn't going after us, not seriously, not all out. I mean, maybe there's some rumblings here and there, and it might be getting worse. Some governors are more friendly toward churches than others and stuff like that. We, re- we learned about that when COVID hit. Well, we might feel that way here in the U.S., that it's okay. But that's only because there are still more of us and people who are sympathetic toward us than there are of them. But let that ratio change, and there's no reason, looking at human history, that it should be any different than it's always gone. See what happens when, that, when the ratio changes. There are plenty of people in the government who believe that Christians should not hold public office, that we shouldn't be teachers, that our right-wing views are comparable to those of the Taliban. Let the ratio change like it has in other countries, like it has in North Korea, which used to be a a, a Christian nation also. The gospel was rampant there uh, uh, three or four generations ago. Like the ratio has changed in China, India, Iran, Nigeria, Russia, Syria, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Algeria, Central African Republic, Cuba, Iraq, Malaysia, Sudan, and I can name more nations that are considered on the top list of especially dangerous places to travel and live there if you call us yourself a Christian. Why are Christians especially hated? It's because we're waiting for a better kingdom, the true kingdom, and Satan hates us. For it. And he is working all the time to ro- try to raise up a kingdom that will mimic the worldwide kingdom of righteousness to come and devour the possibility of that kingdom ever coming to pass. You look at Babylon, the lion. That was one of the kingdoms. Its king Nebuchadnezzar threw Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah into the flame because they would not bow to his image, but only to the God of heaven. But God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king who confessed at the end of Daniel 4. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are encountered as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The Medo-Persian empire, the bear, was one of Satan's kingdoms. It was under this government that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because he prayed to God three times a day. It was the people in the government who came after him. And an official in this government plotted genocide against the Jews. You remember that story? You can read about it in the book of Esther. That was under the Medo-Persian Empire. Greece was also a kingdom of Satan. And we we think, you know, Alexander the Great, he conquered the whole world, and it's just part of history for us. But Alexander the Great adopted this program to make everybody in the world Greek. Greek customs, Greek religion, and faithful Jews could not do that and be faithful to their God. And the most notorious Greek ruler for the Jews, Antiochus IV, is actually foretold in Daniel. Uh, Antiochus carried out a hideous campaign against the Jews who would not follow the Greek customs, and thousands and thousands of Jews met a terrible end during that time period. It's an atrocious time period. Most of us don't know about that. And Rome, I mean, where do we begin with Rome? The kingdom whose government representative was persuaded to crucify the Messiah, whose emperor sometimes carried out waves of persecution against Christians. All of these kingdoms represented in Daniel's vision are embodied in the vision of the beast from the sea in Revelation 13. And the ultimate kingdom raised as a parody against the kingdom of God will be when the beast, the Antichrist, as we will see, sets up his throne that he will inherit from the dragon, Satan himself. According to biblical prophecies such as Daniel 7, this is the next and last world empire after Rome. And he will reign for three and a half years only because that's how long the Lord will allow it. And then the Lord will return to overthrow his kingdom and to establish his promised reign and finally the words of revelation 11:15 will be a reality the kingdom of the world that satan's parody has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever now listen the realization of all of this alone without even going much further into the prophecy should cause us to think much more deeply about our view of the world and our walk with God in it. World history is about a war between kingdoms. Don't be deceived. We are not at peace with Satan. This is not a peacetime. He wants to destroy us. If we're not thinking about him, he is thinking about us. At least his people are. He's not omniscient. He might not know about us individually. Be thankful, okay? But he wants to destroy us nonetheless. He is always working to raise up and wield political forces in this world to obliterate the very idea of Christ if he can. He's been trying for generations. Still hasn't worked. But we live in a nation that was conceived by many God-fearing people who built into the fabric of our nation the idea of religious freedom. So culturally, we have enjoyed the liberty to go about our business worshiping as we want to. Praise the Lord for that. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in prayer meetings and, and somebody will say, thank you for the religious freedom that we enjoy. They've been in other places where they haven't seen that. Thank you that we can come to church tonight and worship. I love, I love hearing that prayer. But this blessing can also lull us into sleep. Because we don't feel the pressure that many Christians in the rest of the world feel. That if we give our lives to Christ, we'll have to leave our homes and our communities. And in many cases, we might even be killed for doing that. The Taliban forces that we're hearing about right now this week are not the only political force in the world hunting down and slaughtering Christians. They're just in the headlines right now. But wait till this crisis is over in Afghanistan and American citizens are out of harm's way, and the news media has finished exhausting the story, and the political fallout is over, we'll go back to being oblivious that this kind of thing is taking place in the world because we don't live with it every day ourselves. We can decide if we feel like going to church on Sunday, if we want to do this or that with the church without wondering if we're going to live or die for it. And what I'm saying here is not melodrama. It's actually reality. It aligns with what the scripture teaches. This is not a peacetime. It's wartime. It's always been that way. We're not living in neutral territory. We will never be welcome in this kingdom because it's not our kingdom. Paul says in Colossians 1.13 that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, we are strangers and exiles on the earth because we are seeking a homeland. In other words, he says, a better country because we believe that God is preparing for us a city, a city, a politically organized community. The lie we believe is that we can actually grow up in our Christian home and decide to follow God or not and have a nice job and a home and take our vacations and advance our career and set our goals and go to church and nothing bad ever disrupts that lifestyle. Why would it? I mean, persecution, there's no persecution for us. Not not really. No, actually, there is a battle raging for the souls of people on this globe. And those who are still in the kingdom of darkness, we just don't realize there's a war going on until we go to the front lines or until the fight comes to us, which it may, and sooner than we think. So all I'm saying here is when we read the scripture, we're encouraged, we're we're challenged not to be enamored with the present kingdom. Don't seek to advance in this kingdom or to amass wealth and opportunity in this kingdom. The kingdom of the world is upside down. Think about how God can use you to rescue people from this kingdom. Many of you are studying and preparing and planning your futures. Ask God how he wants you to be in the battle to help rescue people from darkness. Make sure that this is in the forefront of your thinking when you're planning ahead as we work and enjoy the blessings of God in this world that he created, we cannot afford to lose sight of what is really going on in the world. Satan is ever seeking to build a false kingdom to keep people in darkness, to direct their worship ultimately to him. But we're on to him, right? We're not ignorant of his devices because the Bible tells us what is really going on. So I think the encouragement is, let's live with a fresh awareness of the way things are in the world, eyes wide open, that we might live as true subjects, not of the kingdom of the world, but of the kingdom to come. And may God bless his church and raise us up with a real view of our mission and war in the world. Father...